This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Delphi, Indiana is a small town about 75 miles north of Indianapolis. The town is surrounded by secluded scenic nature trails known as the Delphi Historic Trails, and it features miles of train tracks. The population of Delphi consists of approximately 3,000 people, and one of them is quite possibly a killer. On Monday, February 13, 2017, at just around 1.30 p.m., 14-year-old Liberty German and 13-year-old Abigail Williams were dropped off near these trails by Liberty's older sister. The two teenage friends planned to spend some time together hiking the trails. Libby and Abby, as they were known to their families and friends, planned on taking advantage of accredited school snow day, a day that students are given off in the event that there were snow days accounted for that didn't wind up being used. Shortly after 3 p.m., Libby's father Derek made his way to the area to pick the pair up, but the girls never showed, and they didn't respond to phone calls or texts. When the two didn't show up, Their families organized a search, fearing that the girls were hurt or lost. But as darkness fell on the woods, they still hadn't been located, and the families called police to officially report them missing. A large search party was created to search the historic trail area where the girls had been walking, but the search had to be suspended due to darkness, and it resumed the next morning. Some searchers did continue to look into the night, but had no luck. The next morning, on Tuesday, February 14th, the search resumed and it included canine units and dive teams. The search went on through the day until around noon when searchers discovered two bodies. The bodies, although not officially confirmed to be those of Libby and Abby, obviously were. Police wouldn't release much in the way of details, but stated that foul play was suspected. Due to the -the out-of-the-way and secluded location where the girls' bodies had been found, and the lack of any witnesses, this had all the makings of a case that might go cold quickly. But amazingly, the police released a photo of a person of interest on Wednesday, February 15th. The grainy photo, which was taken from video shot on Libby's phone, appeared to show a man in a blue jacket and jeans walking along the railroad tracks. Police stated that they wanted to talk to this man to see if he could help their investigation, and asked the public to help identify him. In the days following the photo being released, homes were searched, and one man was arrested on charges unrelated to the case. But apparently... The searches and arrest didn't lead to any breaks in the case. Some of the photos from Libby's phone, presumably shot by her, were released by police. In addition to the mysterious man, another haunting photo captures Abby walking along the tracks at 2.07 p.m. the day the girls went missing, her hands in her pocket, seemingly without a care in the world. On February 22nd, police in Delphi held a news conference and officially called the deaths of Libby and Abby homicides. The unidentified man in the photo was now officially a suspect. Most importantly, at the news conference, police released an audio portion of video shot on Libby's phone hoping that somebody would recognize this man's voice. Three simple words. Down the hill. It wasn't much to go on, but police desperately hoped that somebody could identify the man. That didn't happen. That same day, the FBI added the suspect to their most wanted list. On February 24th, police confirmed that they had DNA evidence and they were going to fast track it for lab analysis. They didn't elaborate on the evidence, and as far as I know, they've never followed up or addressed the DNA issue again. By early March, this case had captured the attention of the nation. A substantial reward was being offered that led to tips coming in, but none of them led to the right suspect. 
Facebook groups and YouTube videos began to spring up, and online investigators sleuthed the case, unfortunately sometimes spreading inaccurate or incomplete information or rumors along the way. By late March, Libby's and Abby's families had broken their silence and made appearances in the press. Around that same time, police announced that the tips and leads were starting to dwindle, and they were scaling down their investigation, an unfortunate sign that the case might be turning cold. Then, in September of 2017, police announced that they were looking at a registered sex offender with an extensive criminal record. He had been arrested in Colorado after driving with expired Indiana tags. He was found to have an axe and a 22 rifle in his possession. It seemed like a strong lead, and the man looked remarkably similar to the sketch of the suspect in Libby's and Abby's case. But ultimately, police ruled him out. Online sleuths noted the similarities between Libby's and Abby's murders with those of the 2012 murders of two girls in Iowa. Ten-year-old Lara Cook and eight-year-old Elizabeth Collins were abducted together as they rode their bikes along a trail near a lake in Evansdale, Iowa. Their bodies were later found about 20 miles away in a wildlife refuge. Iowa police classified their deaths as murders, and as in Libby's and Abby's case, police declined to release the cause of death. Delphi investigators looked at the possibility that the murders might be related, but have apparently ruled out any connection. As of this recording, Libby's and Abby's murders remain unsolved. There are many unanswered questions, and police have never released the cause of death. Despite having more audio and video of the suspect in the murders, investigators have chosen as of now not to release any more than the single photo of the man walking and the down-the-hill audio. Only days ago, police in another infamous Indiana child murder case, the case of April Marie Tinsley, made an arrest in her case. April's 1988 rape and murder was an infamous case, but thanks to DNA advances, police were able to ID and arrest the suspect, 59-year-old John D. Miller. Some people began to question whether Miller could be a suspect in the murders of Libby and Abby. Despite an apparently different physical appearance between Miller and the Delphi suspect, and 100 miles separating Miller's hometown of Gravel, Indiana, and Delphi, police didn't exactly come out and deny that there may be a connection. Instead, they refused to comment on any possible connection. Despite police not immediately dismissing any connections between the two cases, it's unlikely that there is one. But at the very least, seeing April Tinsley's case solved after 30 years is reason for hope that the murders of Libby and Abby will soon be solved as well. Perhaps even using the same sort of DNA database and genealogy that identified the suspect in the Tinsley case. This past spring, Libby's and Abby's families were invited to attend CrimeCon, a true crime convention in Nashville, to discuss the case and spread awareness. They hoped it would generate new tips and leads. And just recently, Libby's older sister, Kelsey, started her own Twitter account advocating for the case. Her Twitter handle is at LibertyG underscore sister. With the CrimeCon appearance and new efforts on social media, it's clear that Libby's and Abby's families are making efforts to see the case solved. And in this episode, I was very fortunate to be joined by Libby's grandparents, Mike and Becky. Thank you both for coming on today to talk about Libby's and Abby's case. Thanks for having us. It seems like Libby's and Abby's faces have become so familiar to many of us over the past year and a half, almost as if we knew them, and by we I mean the public. But of course we didn't know them, but you as as Libby's grandparents knew them better than probably anybody. If you can... Just tell us a little bit about Libby and tell us what she was like as a person and who she was. Um, Libby was a people person. 
and athletic. She was involved in everything. She wanted to try everything. She uh, was a defender of somebody, bullied somebody. She would step right in. She tried to make people happy. Like I said, she was athletic. She was in every sport just about. She she had softball in the summer, and then she went directly into soccer. And from soccer, it was volleyball. And then as soon as volleyball was over, it was swimming. And she would have about two weeks in between, and softball started again. So she was a very busy person. So she kept busy. She wasn't in the, you know, anything bad. She wasn't in, you know, a troublemaker. And with that crowd, it sounds like she kept herself busy and, and going. Oh, yes. She uh, she didn't have time to get into too much trouble because, like I said, she was in sports, so she had practice about every night. She was in all high-ability classes, so she did, you know, she had a lot of classwork. Um, she was, uh, and the rest of the time, uh, usually it was weekends, um, it was family. When she wasn't into sports and stuff, it was family and friends. And speaking of friends, Abby was her best friend? Yes. And how often was she over? Was she sort of like the, the kind of friend that was there all the time and the two were inseparable? Well, she wasn't here all the time. They were back and forth, but because uh, they were both very busy. and uh, Abby was busy also in a lot of things, but she would stay here quite often. Um, as a matter of fact, she had stayed here the night before. Um, she had gone to Florida with us on vacation before. So, yes, we uh, had her around quite a bit. She would stay at Tara's when uh, Libby would be at Tara's on the weekend. She'd go over there. Tara would have... 10 kids at her house. So they, they just all had a good time. And you mentioned that she had stayed over, you know, your house. The two of them were together, you know, the night before the murders. And there's been a little bit of confusion uh, as far as the timeline that day of, of the kids getting dropped off. Who actually dropped them off and, and about what time was that that they were dropped off to go on, on their walk? Granted, the day that this all happened, we weren't looking at our clocks exactly. I know there's been a lot of confusion, and I know I know that uh, there was it was reported by the media in the beginning that they were dropped off about one o'clock. But what we did is we went back through our phone records um, to get a lot of our information as close as what we can. We obviously we cannot be down to the exact minute. Um, but uh, the girls had slept in, and they, they got up. Um, Derek was here, and he made uh, pancakes for them. It was more of a brunch-type thing because they had stayed up a lot of the night uh, painting and stuff. And um, then Libby was bored. She always wanted to be doing something, but she she had gotten into shopping. She liked to shop. So I told her that if you guys do some work for me, because I have an office here at home, that uh, we'd go shopping or something later. So they were file, doing some filing for me for my business. And my end of it was Kelsey, her sister, came out about 1 o'clock and said, hey, I'm going to go to a friend's house before I go to work because Kelsey did have a job. So Libby jumped up at that time and said, hey, can we go? And uh, I told her that uh, she had to have a ride because I didn't have time to take off of work to come pick them up, that if she had a ride back home that they could go. They left here right around 1.30. And Kelsey is the one that took them and dropped them off. 
And do you know about what time they actually arrived at the area where they got dropped off? Well, we um, went out, of course, uh, depending on speed and traffic and everything else. I did go out and drive to see approximately how long. But I know Kelsey said she was talking to her boyfriend when she finished, when she dropped them off as she pulled up to drop them off. So we did go back to phone records, and that was at about 1.38 that she was on the phone with her boyfriend. So somewhere right in that time is when she actually pulled over and dropped them off. So this wasn't a place that was very far away from your house. It was pretty close. It was uh, four or five miles maybe. And so their plan was to stay out there for a while, hang out, walk around, and then meet up later on with somebody that would pick them up? Yes. And what time were they supposed to be uh, picked up? There wasn't a set time. Um, Derek had gone to Frankfurt, was taking some pictures for me, and he was going to pick them up on his way back through. So he, you know, we don't have an exact time how long it was going to take him to take some pictures. So he was going to call them when he got close for them to come up to meet him. Actually, his first phone call to them that he was coming down the road was at 311. He said that he called them again as he pulled in and started to get out of the car, and that was at 314. And just to clarify for our listeners, you mentioned Derek a couple times. Who's Derek to the girls? Derek is Libby's father. Okay. So this is a very tight window. This is an hour and a half approximately from the sounds of it to when they were dropped off to when he went back there to try and uh, pick them up. Yes. And at what point after that did did your family become alarmed that they weren't there, that they weren't responding? Well, Derek called me about 3.30 he had gotten out and he'd walked around some and he tried calling her several times and she didn't answer. So he called me about three thirty and said, Hey, Libby's not answering her phone. Will you try, you know, maybe I can't get through or something. He didn't know. So I started calling and messaging her. My daughter, Tara also started calling and we just weren't getting an answer. And that's not like Libby not to answer her phone. So by that time, we thought, wow, you know, maybe your phone went dead or something. We weren't we weren't sure uh, because it was it would pick up and go to voicemail. Um, so about four o'clock, I called Mike, my husband, and said, hey, um, something's not right. Libby's not answering her phone. Uh, her and Abby are at the trails. We're going to head on over there and start looking. And he said, I'll meet you there. So at that point in time, about four o'clock. Uh, we went there. We we weren't officially alarmed. We just know that's not like Libby not to answer her phone. Something wasn't right. So you're out there searching and other people are out there searching. Uh, and eventually the search was called off for the night. Was that because it was too dark? Well, we searched our family and, and we th- there were several of us. We called in and we all walked the paths, walked the trails and I was on the phone to AT&T as I was out there, our service provider, to see if there was any way I could get them to ping her phone or to, to track her phone because we know there's the capability there. But uh, so I spent most of my time as I was walking on the phone um, and they we I tried everything. They 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 couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. I don't, I don't know what their policies are. And about uh, 520, it was somewhere in there, um, 
Mike happened to come up on me as we were walking, and I said, it's going to be dark pretty soon. We need to call the police. So uh, I think we looked at his phone records, too, and it was right at 520 when he called. He called the police. So you're out looking mainly as a family. You're not alarmed to the point where you think you need to call the police, but then it's getting dark, and I assume you're starting to get a little bit nervous at this point. Yes. So that's when we called in the police. Okay, and they showed up pretty quickly? Yeah, at that point in time, uh, there was very little, if any, hesitation on their part. In fact, they were out there at the trails probably within 15, 20 minutes walking from the other direction. And it quickly spread out either across social media or just obviously it's a smaller community. So the fire department was engaged. There were people searching, hundreds of people all around Delphi, including the, the, you know, the Delphi police, the Carroll County Sheriff's Department. Everybody was looking continually that evening. More formal search parties were were kind of uh, arranged through the through the, the fire department, the volunteer fire department. There, they were going out, walking uh, various trails and, and areas around Delphi, and that went on till probably up close to midnight. And so that that's somewhere in there is where you hear the the, the official search was called off. Only because it was dark and uh, concerned for people's safety. But I will say that there were people who searched all night long. I mean, I was there and they said, Mike, we're, we're not going to stop. And neither did I. I continued to search well into the waning hours of the morning. And there's people that were out there all night long. And then the official search picked up back at daybreak. So was this an area that your family had been to before or Libby and Abby had gone out to before? It is a trail system that's uh, kind of part of that's Delphi has, you know, several miles of trails. And yes, it is a spot that is frequented by many kids and people. And it's a it's a it's a area where a lot of people go to take pictures because of some some scenic area there. I mean, they put a nice bridge going across the new highway that came through to, to bridge the gap so they could have uh, more trails to the system. So it's not a place that they had never been before. It was something that not just them, but other people use frequently as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There actually were several people there throughout the day that this all happened. And had any of them reported seeing the girls? Oh, the other people? Yeah, the other people that were out in the area? You know, law enforcement really hasn't told us just anything about the witnesses. So that night, you don't find anything. The other searchers don't find anything. The search resumes in the morning. Who was it that actually discovered the girls' bodies out there? And and about what time was that? It was uh, one of the organized search parties that, uh, again, the local fire department, and along with the sheriff and police, they did a, a coordinated search effort and put search parties together with either a member of the fire department or a member of law enforcement. So there was ability to have radio contact and, you know, various communications and with some level of authority, you know, within each search party. And, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly, uh, I mean, I do know who found them, but we don't, we don't need to name people at this point, but, um, they found them right about noon, noon time frame is when they, they called in, they found them. And how did you all find it? Did they contact you directly or did somebody come find you and, and break that news to you? Well, we were, my wife and I both were in separate search parties. 
Um, somebody had called somebody, I believe, in, in her search party on, on a, you know, via cell phone and said, hey, they think they found the girls. And then I happened to be in one of the search parties and uh, heard one of the radios, some radio chatter come across that they think they found them. So I left my area just just like my wife did. And we both headed to uh, what they call the, the trailhead there, basically the area where they were originally dropped off. They didn't officially tell us then. They did call us all in to the fire department to give us an official that they had found two people. But at that point in time, they would not officially name the girls. But you assumed, I, I take it, that, that you knew that was them? Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's not like a big city where you could have multiple things going on. You know, we knew. And I, I can't even imagine as a parent, you know, how that would feel as a grandparent to them, how that felt for you. How did you handle it? How did you cope with that initial uh, devastating news? Well, shock, I guess, would be the one of the first things we felt was just, you know, that this isn't happening. You know, this this is not not real. And to be honest with you, we still feel many times that way today, that this, this hasn't really happened. I mean, this, you know, she's going to come walking through the door any, any time now. I mean, it's... It's a horrible thing to live through. And uh, so, you know, we literally probably as a family for months just we're in shock. And a lot of things become blurry through that whole time because of it. Um, your life's changed 180, 360 degrees at that point. Uh, and that's when people say, I can't imagine. No, you can't because I couldn't either before this. And I still don't know where we're, you know, where we're going, what we're doing. It's uh, a total upheaval of everything that was normal to us prior to this happening. And one of the things I just wanted to ask about, and maybe you know this, uh, maybe it's something that police have chosen not to share. There's There was some discussion that possibly their bodies weren't there the night before when the search was happening that they may have been put there wound up there after the the initial search do you know about that is that true or accurate well i've had nothing from the police officially telling me that but just based on facts and information that that i've collected i have no reason to believe that that they weren't there and they weren't brought back and that's just based on the fact that I've talked to a lot of people who were involved in the search or involved in different aspects of this and, you know, but nothing official has been said. Yeah, this is where they were. This is where they've been. They haven't been, been moved because obviously until we catch the perpetrator and, uh, answer some, all, all these questions, you don't know exactly what happened. You know, there's three, at least three people who know what happened and two of them are gr girls who were, who were murdered. You mentioned, too, that the police haven't told you everything and there are certain things they won't talk about. What did they tell you early on when they started talking with you? Uh, in reference to specifically? Well, the investigation or what their thoughts were or, you know, what how they were going to handle it right from the beginning? Yeah, they uh, they basically, they even took the time to to explain to us the, kind of the methodical approach of how they're handling tips and leads and bringing them in and breaking them down, assigning uh, teams to it. Obviously, at that time, there were hundreds of officers involved and investigators. 
to handle the, the influx of information that was coming in. And uh, it, it, it was impressive of how they, you know, how they truly had a process set up to handle all this, you know, to make sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. But I mean, I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, that's and and long term, you know, in the time since then, have they do they still keep you updated and in touch with you? Uh, yeah, because uh, we get a lot of information ourselves. Uh, people contact us with uh, whether it be tips or, or bits of information for whatever reason they may not feel comfortable calling it in or or for whatever reason. So, and I'm you know up front with people and say you know I'm going to the police with this. That's that's our avenue. That's who's going to make, you know, bring this case to justice for us, you know, is law enforcement. And so I, I probably am in touch with them every couple of weeks, just keep, kind of keep informed on it. But there's not a lot of information that's been, you know, available to share or out there. Uh, they're still working through tips and leads, and they're even circling back around and, and going through uh, more information or, or other information that they've already been through just to make sure that they haven't missed anything. But we're still waiting on that one key piece of information, I guess. And that's what I say. Somebody, this guy lives down the street from somebody or he's somebody's neighbor. And if somebody says, you know what, that could be. But, eh, me, eh, old, you know, old Joe or whatever wouldn't do that. Well, once you call that in, let the police work that. They have all the tools and, inform, you know, uh, available to them to, to run somebody's information and check out, see if there even could be a possibility that they would be involved. So that's what I ask of people to do is, uh, you know, the girls went down, uh, you know, fighting, trying to give us information. We've got, you know, that uh, audio clip and the picture and a sketch from somebody who saw the guy leaving that day. Um, Somebody out there says, you know what, that looks like the guy that lives down the hall from me or or I work with him, or I see this guy at a diner every week, you know, or every Friday morning or whatever. Well, call that information in. Be, in a, be as specific as possible with the police to let them focus in on it and say, okay, you know, Joe, I'll just use a name. Joe, you know, it couldn't be him. He, he was out of the country or whatever, you know. Let those guys do that job. Don't try to figure it out on our own and, and discount somebody let those guys do it because they truly have all they have all kinds of information and tools that they can use that a lot of us aren't even aware of. And one good thing about the case is that it did have a really good media attention early on. You know, it was all over national news. They put a big reward out right away. How did you handle the media part of it? You know, you've got to deal with the shock of what happened to them. But Pastor in America seems camped out in your town. How did you deal with that part of it? Well, we were uh, very grateful for all the news coverage because that's what it ta- that's what it's going to take. It's continual efforts keeping this information out there because he again he lives down the street from somebody. I don't know where it's anywhere USA. It could even be outside the USA. I don't know where this guy's at. But before he does this to somebody else's family, somebody needs to recognize and say, you know what, that sure looks like that guy. And, and that's really all, you know, that one little tip away, and we can put this thing to bed uh, and get this guy again before he create or does a, another heinous crime like, like what he's done to us. You mentioned the clip, the audio, the sketch. 
How many times have you, as a family, looked at that over and over and, and wondered, do I know that person? Is that somebody the girls knew? Man, I, I couldn't tell you how many times, you know. I, I've got it. It's it's burned into my, you know, burned into my, my, my brain. And I, if somebody was to talk like that behind me, I would know it immediately. And, yes, we've all racked our brains thinking, do I know this guy? And I'm going to say, obviously, we don't. Um, I was hoping that, you know, at some point it would, you know, light bulb would come on and we'd be able to say, yeah, oh, yeah, this is, you know, he lives over on the other side of the can or something. But we just haven't got to that point yet. And that's why we're relying on the public to help us because somebody surely will recognize that between the picture and, and the sketch and that audio, somebody ought to be able to tie that down and say, yeah, that's that's my uncle or that's my cousin or my husband or my brother or my son or something. And police have been really quiet about the case and the evidence they have. They've released, you know, just those couple small items. And that sort of led to a lot of speculation on the Internet, people sharing rumors. I assume some of them, I don't know how closely follow them. I assume some of them may be hurtful towards your family. Uh, are there any things, any rumors or misconceptions or mistakes that you'd like to clear up for anybody out there that, that's been mentioning some of those kinds of things? Yeah. One of the rumors I heard was that when, after we called Mike, he came home to go through some stuff. That's not true. Mike came straight there. And yes, when he first got there, at that point in time, we were still looking. We weren't quite sure. Yes, he has a friend that was in law enforcement, and he did call him um, and and to ask him, look, this is what's going on. You know, what do you suggest? You know, so, yes, he did. Uh, is there anything sinister or anything hidden in any of that? No, it's not like we had a handbook of what we were supposed to do. Uh, Libby's pretty responsible. Y you aren't thinking the worst at that point in time. Not, not, not here. You know, this has never happened like this around here. We never expected anything. You know, the worst that we expected is maybe they slid down a hill and she lost her phone and they couldn't get up there. You know, that's that's what we were we were expecting to go out and walk the trails and holler for them and then holler and say, hey, here we are. That is what, when we first went out, we were thinking. Yeah, and, and to further qualify that, uh, I work at a uh, place in Lafayette, and you have to badge, I have to badge in twice, and I'm on video camera to get in there. And you got to badge, badge out to get to leave, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm on video camera. So there's been a lot of speculation that it was me, I was out there, and let's face it, that's what gets thrown out there. That's just wasted effort. If people would really focus on it, I mean, the police know exactly where I am. Come on, give the law enforcement some credit. Um, you know, yes, did they check me out? Yeah, I hope they did. I want them to check everybody out. Um, but again, give the give the law enforcement some credit there. That uh, I mean, I've been fully vetted and checked, and uh, and but but I don't I don't waste time when people put that stuff on. It doesn't mean a thing to me. That's just detractors or people that are uninformed 
you know, if they want to focus and help on the case, then get the spread it out. That provides no value whatsoever to the justice these girls deserve. So I don't waste any time on it. And and every one of us, every one of us that was around Libby at all, her friends um, that came in contact with her quite frequently, we, we were all swabbed. Every one of us gave DNA. Um, and it wasn't me. I didn't take Mike's DNA. Uh, FBI came. They have protocol procedure is how they took his DNA. There, it, it has been out there that I'm the one that took his DNA, and that's ridiculous. The scary part of this case, or one of the scary things, there's several scary things, but you mentioned that the two of them were together, and, and you thought the worst that happened was maybe they slipped and fell and lost their phone. And you and you hope that two you know two kids being together they're safer because there's somebody with them, there's less chance of something happening. And the scary part that it still happened with with two girls being there, you know, as a parent myself, I just you know I think if I send my kids out in there with somebody else, a friend, it's going to be uh, less chance of something bad happening. And we know just from this case that that's not always true that leads me to my next question in in the neighborhood you know right after that time or since then or now was there a fear of people to let their kids up out of the house oh most certainly uh if you drove through town you didn't see kids out for a while you just didn't see them i don't blame them you know our girls were doing what all the kids many of the kids were doing that day they were out enjoying the nice weather and it, it came down hard on this community that, oh, it, we're not the safe little community we thought we were. And this May, this past May, you traveled to Nashville to attend the true crime convention, CrimeCon. You got to talk about the case on stage with Nancy Grace and meet a lot of people. Um, what was that whole experience like for, for your family? Um, you know, at first we had some reservations about doing that. Uh, to be honest, none of us knew anything about it. And, and we went to Anna's and because of a lady on Facebook in our brainstorming group, uh, came to me when I was in, uh, Indianapolis and told me about CrimeCon because it was in Indianapolis the, the uh, year before and said, listen, I think this is something you need to do. And she was the one that made arrangements with the producer and all, all of them to say, Hey, you, you know, you need to look at this case. And I, I did talk to them at that time. And, and, but like I said, we had reservations, but after we got there, uh, both families, Anna's and ours, both have decided that was probably one of the best things we had, we had done yet because it was, um, everybody, everybody there would come up to us and say, what can we do to help you? Um, it was quite humbling. Um, it, it was um, that there were so many people out there that really wanted to help us catch this killer. Because that is, that has become our focus, to catch him. And we know we can't do it alone. And we're doing everything we can to help law enforcement to be able to do their job. And it takes people like the people from crime con to help us. And I believe that it's going to be people like that. Um, 
and the people that in, in some of our, I, I have a brainstorming group, which is nothing but to think outside the box different ways we can get his picture out there. And it's going to be one of these people or one of these, I, I truly believe, will be behind how this guy gets caught. Because it was amazing. When we went to crime, you know, we had been on Dr. Phil and, and, and Dr. Oz and had talked to Nancy Grace before. And you wouldn't believe how many people at CrimeCon, and you know yourself that these people, that's what they do, or they follow crimes. And we had so many people come up to us and say, I'm sorry, but I've never heard of your case. Um, so that was quite an experience because we just thought it was out there everywhere. And then we realized, oh, it's not nearly as known as what we thought. And then we said, well, how do you not know? It's been on national TV and everything. And, and so many people today don't watch TV. It's all podcasts. And that was something I was surprised about because I, you know, I met your family there and a lot of people were talking about how great it was listening to you and, and how moved they were. Uh, but at the same time, like you just mentioned, I was surprised that there were still people who weren't familiar with the case. And I, that was surprising to me because as much as I was aware of it, you know, I didn't think that there were other people that weren't, but it seemed like you all did a really good job handing out material and, flyers and uh, different items with the case information on it where people could go. So um, I think you definitely did a good job getting the word out there. And, uh, you know, from my past experience with that kind of thing with CrimeCon, the people there are more than willing to spread the the word and, and get the case out there to an even bigger audience. So I hope that that wound up happening for you. Right. Well, we do too. And, and, our whole thing is, is he's not going to be caught if they don't know to look for him. So our, our, our whole philosophy is, is awareness, getting people aware. And, and the other thing that we've run into, a huge problem we have run into, um, is uh, just like the Daniel Nations thing. You know, you don't realize how many people we meet today say, oh, wasn't he already caught? Wasn't, your, wasn't that killer already caught? Because all of that hoopla that came out about Daniel Nations and is now you've got people trying to connect April Tinsley with our case. Well, then people think that our killer's caught too and they, they don't look. So now we have to re-raise re awareness because even though the people didn't know about it, they quit because they thought he was caught. So we have found that we run into that quite often also. And those are two interesting points you, you touch on because, you know, one thing I wanted to ask was when there was word about Daniel Nations, who seemed like a, a pretty reasonable suspect, did you get any kind of hope? Did, did it feel like that might be the guy to your family? We have learned it's a roller coaster ride. You know, you have hope one day and then you don't. And then you have hope and then you don't. We have learned through this that no matter what goes on out there in the media, no matter what is said, no matter what, until we get a phone call from law enforcement, it's just hearsay. And then you bring up April Tinsley's case. It's probably not connected, I would think, but just the fact that a case that's in your state that was 20 years, you know, 30 years old can be solved like that, does that give you hope? that this case will be solved 
whether it's now or, or down the road, does that make you feel like there's more hope? Oh, absolutely. There's uh, and that just goes to to bolster the fact of of the work that law enforcement is doing. I mean, I mean, look at this case. It's 30 years old, and they're still working it, and and they solved it. Um, you know, it's just the relentless pursuit of law enforcement. You know, when I said earlier, they're doing things behind the scenes that we may not even be aware of. Well, case in point. Um, I mean, that's one right there. And they're working just as hard on our cases, you know, uh, as, as, as they were that one. And I'm so happy f- for that family that they got closure of that chapter in their lives because it, it sure, I don't know if I can use the word sucks, but our lives sure suck right now. You know, um, because we can't close that chapter and start truly healing because we don't know. We don't have the guy. You know, it's there's the, the fact of the matter is there's there's a guy walking around that is responsible for a double murder as a free man in our society somewhere. And he needs to be brought in. As far as the word closure, an arrest being made and, and learning the person's name and that doesn't bring the girls back but do you think that will give you some kind of closure or some kind of answer that you might be looking for it'll provide uh, the way I kind of look at this is we got this new book that was thrown upon us when the girls were murdered and our lives changed and this is just one chapter in there that when this guy gets caught and, and we get him uh, incarcerated, that we can close that chapter. But it's not over. You know, I mean, he'll be learning to live with with that, and uh, you know, we're, we're still struggling to live with the loss. I mean, it's every day. It's it's not something you get to we get to take a break of or clock out and and go do something else. I mean, it's every day. And, and like wife said, that has become our lives and our mission is to keep this information out there, spread it the best we can, doing whatever we can physically and possibly do to help long, you know, help drive in tips or information or to find that one person that says, yeah, I'm willing to come forward because I do know something. Only clo- the, the only satisfaction we'll have when he's caught is the fact that he won't be able to do it to somebody else he won't be able to do that to another family. That's that's the only satisfaction I think that we will get out, out of him being caught. And because you you worry that not only did he do this to to Libby and Abby, but he might have done this to somebody else. I guess that weighs on you as well. Yes, or that he could do it again and and you know, that's our fear is that we we don't get him caught before he does it again. Well, and hopefully it is a question of a matter of when he's caught versus if he's caught and based on all the cases we see being solved recently you know i think there's a good cut you know a good chance that he will be caught and hopefully sooner rather than later we have faith that he will be caught if somebody's out there listening the one thing i definitely want to do is share the delphi homicide investigation tip line number it's 844-459 Five seven eight six. If somebody out there knows anything or hears anything or has come across somebody they think could be responsible, please share that tip with with police. Is there anything that you both would like to close off with? Uh, anything you'd like to say as we close? Um, if anybody wants uh, 
to share the flyer or hear his voice or if you want to look at the picture again. We do have a website for the girls. It's abbyandlibby.org. It's A-N-D. And that that's a, a website for the girls. It actually has a, a link that you can go to to uh, listen to his voice. It's got a link to the flyers. So if somebody wants to print some out, um, we've had many people take flyers when they go on vacation and post them wherever. Um, and we are trying to do updates and some information on there too. If they And it does sort of have the story and stuff about the girls. So if they want to learn more about them, they could go to abbyandlibby.org. And do you frequently get tips there? Is that where a lot of people will give you information that you pass along to police? No, no. Um, it, uh, most of them just get a hold of us directly. I'm on okay. Facebook. Mike's on Facebook, you know. And uh, they, uh, well, he's not on Facebook, but he gets messages when he does check them. But yeah, um, she, she usually asks check things for me. <laughs> and speaking of which, you know, that was one thing I noticed um, that Kelsey has started uh, a campaign on Twitter um, that seems like something that is helping to generate interest too. So um, hopefully they can find Kelsey on Twitter and who of course is, you know, Libby's sister and follow her. Cause I know she shares a lot of helpful information on there as well. She uh, actually came up with the idea on her Twitter campaign. We met with several uh, survivors and family members of the golden state killer and one of the uh, ladies there uh, took Kelsey under her wing because they had a lot in common. She, too, was 17 years old when her sister was killed. So they've become kind of close, and they've kind of guided Kelsey on some of the things that she could do to help. So with some guidance, she has started her own campaign for the younger people because us older people don't do the Twitter and all of that. So she has started her own campaign to get the word out there to to people that don't just do Facebook and TV. And I think that's a good way to spread information in addition to what you're already doing. And then, you know, the podcast and news media, I think that you're continuing to put the word out there and we'll certainly spread it on social media, too. And, you know, the people that listen to this podcast, hopefully somebody out there will come through with the right information to solve the case soon. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or search for The Murder in My Family on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. If you prefer, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder in my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Maria Fojo, Wendy Sanders, Carl Cossey, and Becky Jo Malone. 
Thanks to all of you that generously support the show through donations. Your support helps the show continue to grow and improve. Until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information.